Hey guys, my name is Sammy Rhodes, and um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the REF campus minister here at South Carolina, and my family and I have served with REF for going on 11 years. Um, We did five years at Georgia Southern, now we're going on year six here at South Carolina, and um, I guess we've been at CPC for like two years, and just want to say thanks for letting me come this morning and preach. Um, If you ever want to know more about REF and what we do, I'd love to talk to you, ways you can pray for us, ways you can support us. Um, I'm happy to talk afterwards. So what I want to do this morning is look at a passage from the Gospel of Mark, and really it's it's Jesus in these four confrontations with Pharisees. And the question I want to ask this morning is, like, this is the kind of sermon where, for my own heart and your own heart, I want to ask, can we relate it all to the Pharisees? In other words, the way I want you to hear this sermon is not like, man, I wish my friends could hear this sermon. The way I want you to hear this sermon is, I want to look with Jesus at my own Pharisaical heart. Um, there are a lot of different ways of, of being a Pharisee. There's the conservative way that I think a lot of us are familiar with. There's a progressive way. There's a Christian way. There's a non-Christian way. Um, and even as you are a Christian who begins to understand grace, I don't know why I'm doing that, and uh, <laughs> we believe in grace. Um, but you know what I mean? You get grace now. Like You still can, your heart can be pharisaical. This came home to me literally just yesterday where I decided um, on Twitter that I thought it would be funny to hate tweet about the new Hillsong movie. And I said something like, um, the only thing I want to see less than a, a praise band is a movie, or a popular praise band is how a praise ba- a movie about how a praise band got popular, which was like not even that funny. And also I learned pretty hurtful because about... 50 people said, I can't believe your attitude. And I wanted to dismiss them and be like, you just don't, you're not my kind of Christian. You're not cynical enough to be like a real Jesus follower. (laughs) Um, But then it struck me afresh as I'm getting ready to preach the sermon, like you're still looking for reasons to look down on your brothers and sisters even. So let's read a passage where Jesus does this four kind of confrontations with people like us. Here's, uh, I'm going to read Mark 2, 16 through 3, 6, starting in in Mark 2, 16. Um, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he, Jesus, was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Then the third encounter, when Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. 
And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And then the last encounter. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, um, I pray that as we read about these encounters between you and the Pharisees, Lord, would you show us yourself? Lord, we praise you are the one who is not only gracious enough to reveal yourself, that we might know you, that we might um, be known by you, but you are also the one who is gracious enough to reveal ourselves to us. Lord, uh, apart from you doing that, we will never see ourselves. We'll be blind forever about our own sin, about our own pride, about our own lust, about our own greed. We need you to be the one who comes and shows ourselves to ourselves that we might see deeply, maybe for the first time or maybe for the millionth time, how much it is that we truly need you, uh, your death for us, your life for us, your grace to us. Meet, Meet with us in these places, rebuke us, encourage us, lift us up, cast us down, do your work in us this morning, we pray. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Several years ago, one of my good friends showed me what is still remains my favorite video on the internet, and it was by this random church in Raleigh, North Carolina, that basically they were doing a series on the real Jesus. They were preaching from one of the Gospels, I'm not sure which one, and they did these, I think, genius videos where they took these old um, Jesus movies and then dubbed over them and set, put things into Jesus' mouth that, like, that we might, like, the ways that we might envision Jesus wrongly. And there's this one video in particular that is just still has my heart, where here's Jesus, and he's coming to gather the disciples before he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And as he goes to gather them, the way they dubbed over Jesus was they put Jesus just, they made him just criticize and, like, condemn all his disciples. So he goes to them one by one, and he goes to Peter, and he's like, Peter, um, you said my name in vain again last night. I wish you would stop doing that. He goes to John. He's like, John, I caught you, or I saw you smoking a cigarette. And then my favorite one is he goes to, like, James or somebody, and he says, James, I saw you drink last night. And this is my favorite line. He goes, not enough to get drunk, but just enough to make me angry. This <laughs> is still, I think, a beautiful line. So, and then he gathers all the disciples together, and he, he, he basically says, come, come all you sinners, there's no hope for you, all is lost, I'm Jesus, and that's how it ends. <laughs> it's, I think it's hilarious. But the reason I think it's hilarious is because that, if we're being honest, is the kind of Jesus, not just that the Pharisees wanted, but that we want. A Jesus who agrees with us, a Jesus, in the words of Anne Lamott, you know you've, you know you've made God in your own image when he hates all the same people you do or even agrees with you, even about the ways that you hate yourself. And this is exactly why the Pharisees can't deal with Jesus. Like when Jesus keeps coming to them with the grace of of his kingdom, with the grace of the gospel, they just can't deal because he's a threat to the the Jesus that they want. And so what I want to do this morning is just think, think with me together about these Pharisees and kind of what 
as we look at them, I, I hope we kind of learn about ourselves. But four things about these encounters that we learn about Pharisees that I think apply just as much today to us. Here's the first one. Number one, Pharisees have to be judgmental. So this first encounter is a weird one. They have this criticism of Jesus, where they basically come to Jesus' disciples and say, why does your rabbi, why does your guy hang out with sinners? Not just sinners, but people who are like very clearly doing wrong and sinful things. Why does he go to dinner and party with those guys? And the implication is, if he really were of God, he would be hanging out with us, the righteous. He would be like partying and having us over to dinner, not this trash that doesn't know the first thing about the Bible, that doesn't have the first moral decency about them. Why in the world is Jesus eating with sinners? And Jesus has this, of course, brilliant illustration where he says, listen, who is it that knows that they need to go to a doctor? It's not those who see themselves as well. It's those that know they are sick. I've I've come to call not the righteous, not those who think they've got it all together, not those who, who pride themselves in their own health. I've come to call those who know they don't have it together who know their lives, at least internally, are a mess and a wreck. I've come to call the sick and the sinners. Um, no one gets this better than Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor, her short stories are worth their weight in gold when it comes to this theme. What does it feel like or what is it like to be a Pharisee? And one of her stories, one of my favorite stories, is called Revelation. She's got this character named Mrs. Turpin who's taking her husband Claude to the doctor. They're in a small southern town. They're the well-to-do people of that town. Claude has come down with some sort of illness. And the whole story is set in this waiting room, which is one of the most humanizing places on earth, right? Like, think about the last time you were in a doctor's waiting room. You've got people of all kinds of, all kinds of backgrounds from all kinds of, all kinds of types. And here's Miss Turpin, and she's sitting with Claude in the waiting room, and she's just judging the mess out of all the people around her. She's just internally going through the checklist of why she's better than all of them, but the way she's talking to the staff, the way she's looking at the people, finally there's this one teenage girl who's kind of like goth in the story, and she's had enough of it. She can't stand the stink of Mrs. Turpin's self-righteousness, and she goes over to basically choke her out. <laughs> it's really beautifully, the way it ends is only Flannery Connor could do it. She goes to choke her out, and as she's choking Mrs. Turpin out, Mrs. Turpin has this revelation. She has this vision, and the vision is of the saints marching in to the new heavens and the new earth. And here's what she sees. I'm going to read it. It's a little long, but it's worth it. Uh, here's what O'Connor writes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash cleaned for the first time in their lives and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession, was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. And here's the line I love. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. And there's, there's, this is why I love uh, Dick Lucas will say, old British preacher, that you cannot be too bad for Jesus, but you can be too good for him. And the Pharisees, the biggest barrier between them and Jesus was their own respectable, good order, dignity, their goodness. 
And this is why the Pharisees have to, that's why when you're a Pharisee, you have to be judgmental because you're basing your standing on your own performance. And when you base, this is what Richard Lovelace, he wrote that book, Spiritual of, of, uh, of Dyna- uh, The Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal, he'll say, the temptation for Pharisees is you're always basing your justification, your standing with God, on your sanctification, your performance. And the gospel reorders that. The gospel says, no, no, no. Your growth, your change, your performance always has to hinge upon how God feels about you, the way he enjoys you, your standing with him. But what we do is we reverse it. Because when you think you're standing, your standing, your justification depends on your sanctification, it makes you one of two things. It makes you either really, really smug because you think you're living up to the standard, and so you have to, you have to look down on others who are not. Or it makes you really, really sad because you know you're not living up to it. And this is exactly the Pharisees. Why, because G, why, why do they have to be judgmental? Because the, Jesus is a threat to their own sense of righteousness. Jesus is a threat to their own ego. Um, I love the way that Bernardo Clairvaux used to say it. He said, when I preached myself, the scholars came and praised me. But when I preached Christ, the, the sinners came and thanked me. When you're a Pharisee, one of the ways you know is you're constantly comparing yourself to others. And the question for us is, do you know that you're just as bad as others? Do you know that you need Jesus just as much as anyone else? Do you know your need... For Jesus, we sing that, that hymn, Come Ye Sinners, and we had that line where we say, the only fitness he requires is to what? Is to feel your need of him. Do you feel that? Pharisees don't. Pharisees have to be judgmental because it still hangs in their performance. But second, Pharisees also can't be joyful. This is their second encounter with Jesus, their second criticism, is basically this. Listen, we are fasting our tails off. What are your disciples doing? Like, they're just hanging out with you, having parties, enjoying life. We're over here working. They're over here partying with you. What in the world is going on with us? And Jesus again comes in and he says, you can't fast when the bridegroom is with you. You can't fast when the feast is here. You can't fast when it's time to party. Jesus is saying, listen, the whole point of fasting is that you might feast better with Jesus, that you might feast more on the bread of life. And Jesus is saying, when the bread of life is here, it's time not to fast, but to feast. There's a time coming where I'm going to go away, where our fasting is appropriate as we wait and long for our hearts to feast on him again and wait for his return, where he says he's going to come and drink wine and party with us eternally. Then's the time for fasting, but not when the bridegroom is here. But here's what he's saying. Pharisees can't be joyful because you're always looking around and missing the party. You're missing the way that Jesus enjoys you. Jesus, the two metaphors he gives, we're not going to go into them, but he says, to know me is to enjoy me. To know me feels like, what does he say? A fresh new, a new pair, a new outfit. To know me feels like a fresh pair of clothes. To know me feels like opening a bottle of wine. To know me is to enjoy me, but when you're a Pharisee, you can't because you're still too busy looking at yourself and your own performance and how you're doing instead of how Jesus feels about you. And we do that in the Christian life, don't we? We can make even the most important things that the Bible calls us to, the spiritual disciplines, all kinds of ways that Jesus commands us to live, and we make it about those things. We make those things an end instead of a means to an end of knowing and enjoying Jesus. No one got this better than Jean Fleming in her book, Between Walden and the Whirlwind. Here's what she says. She's talking about missing the point of enjoying Jesus and instead being wrapped up in all of these things she's been told to do and being exhausted and burned out and miserable. Here's what she says. In the 20-some years I've been a Christian, 
I've received instruction on and been challenged to just feel this list with me for a minute. To read my Bible daily, pray without ceasing, do in-depth Bible study regularly, memorize scripture, meditate day and night, fellowship with other believers, always be ready to give an answer to the questioning unbeliever, give to missions and to the poor, work as unto the Lord, use my time judiciously, give thanks in all circumstances, serve the body using my gifts to edify others, keep a clean house as a testimony, I love that one, (laughs) practice gracious hospitality, submit to my husband, love and train my children, disciple other women, manage finances as a good steward, involve myself in school and community activities, develop and maintain non-Christian friendships, stimulate my body with careful reading, improve my health through diet and exercise, color coordinate my wardrobe, watch my posture, and my favorite one is, and simplify my life by baking my own bread. <laughs> and when she says that, that, like the exhaustion that comes when we try to live the Christian life without Jesus, right? When we try to, when, I mean, you know this exhaustion. When you re, try to read your Bible every day, which is a good thing, but miss Jesus and the joy that comes from knowing him and being known by him. This is where, again, when you're a Pharisee, you're, you're, everything hinges on your own performance. So if you're not smug because you're doing well, you're going to be sad. And part of that sadness that I've been like, thinking about a lot this morning especially is the sadness of missing that you actually already have Jesus. Like you, you already have him. And it's not because of anything you've done or are doing. It's because everything that he did to make you, to make you his. And there's a joy that comes in just being just enjoying Jesus as we do the things he's called us to, but don't miss him in them. Um, one of the ways you know you're a Pharisee is that you can't stand when people are enjoying themselves a little too much, especially if they're breaking some rules to do it. That's a telltale sign. And Jesus comes in and he says, listen, I'm a threat. I'm a threat to the ways you're trying to control me. I'm a threat to the ways you're trying to control other people. I'm a threat to the ways you're trying to control and manage everyone and manage your life. And the question for you is, do you think Jesus enjoys you? Do you think Jesus doesn't just love you, but he likes you? Pharisees typically don't. But then there's a third encounter. And this is where, thirdly, we learn about the Pharisees, that they have to make God's law external. This is where the Pharisees start to get in with Jesus about the Sabbath stuff. And the Sabbath stuff, you have to understand, so Sabbath, we know, is one of the Ten Commandments. We have, it's a good question to ask, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? I'm sure, we could talk about that a long time. But the Pharisees, what they did was they wanted to make it really practical, so they had an entire law, law on the laws of God, basically. And they had a lot of laws that centered around the Sabbath, and they elevated, Jesus is going to say, you elevated your man-made laws and traditions above or equal to the law of God, which is your first problem. But the reason you did that, Jesus is going to say, because you wanted to make yourself feel better. You wanted to make the law of God, which should crush you when you really understand it, you wanted to make it into something that was nice, tidy, and keepable so you could feel, your, feel better about yourself when you look around the world at other people. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did with the Sabbath. So one of their laws was you don't eat grain on the Sabbath. Well, here come Jesus and his disciples, and what are they doing? They're hungry, so Jesus lets them enjoy themselves and have a little grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees freak out. Why? Because Jesus is a threat to their to-do list. He's a threat to their boxes that they want to check off. He's a threat to the way they want to reduce Scripture to something very, very keepable instead of something that crushes you and shows you your need for Jesus. Um, but we do this when we're in that pharisaical place, is we approach everything externally and miss the point. 
this is you know one of the things I think about the most when I think about this in myself was when I was a junior in high school, I was a part of this ministry called First Priority. And the idea of first priority was you met before school to show Christians and non-Christians at your school or non-Christians and the not real Christians at your school that you were serious about Jesus, you were serious about Bible study. So you show up at 6.30, have a little Bible study, and then feel good about yourself. And so my junior year, I showed up, and I was involved in this ministry, and I decided to run for president. It's me and this one other guy, and the adults who ran the ministry, like, looking back on this, this should not have happened, but they basically made us do this interview where we had to tell them why we should be president. And I remember for me, I'd just become a Christian, and I had really gotten into, like, this idea that Christians read their Bibles every day, and I, man, I really, like, was, went hard after that. And so when they asked me the question, Sammy, why should you be the president of First Priority, I remember, like, my spiritual drop-the-mic moment was because I haven't missed a quiet time in over a year. And like, in my mind, I was, like, waiting for the, like, this is a man of God after God's own heart. And I like to imagine, when I look back on that story, I like to imagine what Jesus, like, how Jesus was reacting to this. And I think it was something like, man, I can't wait to, in a year, like, really crush Sammy in my love. <laughs> and show him that one of the things I take seriously is humility, and um, that's something he does not exhibiting right now. But that's what happens, right? When, when you make it about your own performance, when you think it hinges on your own performance, you have to reduce even what Jesus says to something you feel like you can do with, with, with reason. And what happens, the one of the ways you know you're a Pharisee is because Jesus is a threat to that. One of the things you do is you really do believe that sins of the body are worse than sins of the heart which is why when's the last accountability group you ever saw on Pride? Or when's, when's the last megachurch pastor that's ever been asked to step down because of greed? Like, we do this thing where we really do elevate the sins of the body over sins of the heart, and Jesus is coming and he's saying, no, let's talk about pride. That's why Lewis has that great line where he says, the devil became the devil not through lust, but through pride. And the biggest thing that the Pharisees are dealing with, they, they're doing all the right things. I mean, it's literally Jesus in another place in Luke. He does the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember the prayer of the Pharisee? Like he's saying, I do all the things you've told me to do. And yet here's this tax collector who's doing none of them. But he's the one who gets it. Because he's the one who knows he's sick. Because he's the one who knows he needs a savior. But then the last one. Pharisees, lastly, hate the grace of the gospel. So their fourth criticism, their fourth encounter, it's the Sabbath again. There, here's this man with a withered hand. And they're, I love the scene, how, they, how Mark paints the Pharisees. They're just sitting, watching Jesus, like waiting to catch him, which is so interesting to me. And they obviously know their tensions by this point. And here's Jesus, and Jesus in their faces does this radical act of healing and mercy. And it's a beautiful picture where Jesus is saying, this is what I've come for. I've come to make the lame well. I've come to make the sick whole. And it's this literally physical illustration of why Jesus has come, and they hate it. Because Jesus is a threat to their resume. Jesus is a threat that this guy, here's what you have to understand about their context, is when they saw someone who was lame or crippled, they really did think that it was because of sin. This is why Jesus, if you remember with his own disciples, they remember they encountered the man who's born blind, and they asked that question, who sinned, him or his parents? 
And so Jesus knows they think this man is crippled because of something he's done, because of sin. And he's coming and he's saying, my grace is about restoration. My grace is about bringing people who know their need into the kingdom and making them whole. And this is the moment, you have to understand this, this is the moment where they decide with the Herodians, who are the progressives of the day, Jesus has got to go. If, and they know, this is what they know. If you live by grace, you are going dis, like, to totally disrupt and reorient the order of the way things go, not only in your life, but in the life of the world. And they are freaking out about this, and they decide he's got to go. And Mark is making it really, really point that even if this man's hand was withered, the bigger problem was the Pharisees' hearts were withered, and they didn't even know it. I love the way, but, but it's interesting to me that Mark also makes it known that the Pharisees and the Herodians are conspiring to kill Jesus. It's the conservatives and the progressives. Tim Keller puts this the best. Here's what he says. When you think about why, how is that, why is that, why is Jesus a threat to both, here's what he says. Progressives typically think about the world like this. The open-minded are in, and the closed-minded are out. Then you have conservatives who think about the world differently who might say the, moral, the morally decent are in, and the immoral are out. And then here comes Jesus, and he says, wrong, wrong. The humble are in, and the proud are out. Those who see their need for me are in, and those who don't see their need for me are out. Those who understand their own brokenness and their need for my grace are in. Those who are still living as if they're whole, put-together people in their pride are out. Pharisees can't deal with a God who loves sinners. Pharisees can't deal with a God who could love broken and messed up people. I'll close with this. My favorite scene in all movie history is a scene from the movie Babe. Um, and the scene that I loved the most is just a little recap on Babe. Farmer Hoggett has sheepdogs who regularly win the top prize at the county fair. His top sheepdog gets hurt, in steps Babe to go compete in the sheepdog's place. Really beautiful picture of the gospel if you think about it. And here comes Babe, and he's training to win the prize. And then that moment happens with Duck where Duck basically comes to Babe and says, listen, you're a pig. Farmers don't love pigs. It doesn't matter even if you win top prize, you're going to be bacon at Thanksgiving. You just are. You're going to be on the Thanksgiving table to eat because farmers don't love pigs. So there's that scene where Babe has that. This is just fun to do. So like, really, this is for me. Just let me retell Babe for my own fun. <laughs> so Babe has that existential crisis. He runs away, gets trapped in a storm, almost dies. They find him, bring him back. And this is where it gets weird, real weird. So then they start, Farmer Hoggett, you remember this? He starts um, like nursing Babe back to health. And then as he's doing that, he like starts to do this, like he starts singing over Babe. And then it gets even weirder. He starts not just singing, but he does this like little Irish jig where he dances. Like it's amazing. If you've never seen it, please go Google this afterwards. But the, the part I love in that scene is, do you remember where all the farm animals are crowded around the window and they're like looking in because they can't believe what they're seeing? Why? Because what kind of a farmer sings over a pig? And every time I see that weeping with my kids and the thought I have is, what kind of a God loves, eats with, parties with, enjoys, sings over sinners. 
And that's our God. That's our God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when you're in the pharisaical place, you can't deal with that. But this is where we have to do the thing, too. Lots of you have heard this before. And our temptation is we still look down our noses at Pharisees. Like, a lot of you, that's your story. Like, you've stayed away from the church because of Pharisees without knowing you're kind of a Pharisee, too. You're a Pharisee about Pharisees. And there's, a good, there's good news for you, too, though, because that's me. Remember the Hillsong tweets? And the good news for Pharisees is that God loves sinners, Pharisees included. And if that's your story, he loves you enough to, obviously, to humble you because he loves you, to show you your son. But he loves you enough to do that patiently. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you do love us enough to, to break us down over time, to show us our need for you. Uh, would you remind us today that we are yours? Like You really did come for us. Um, and would you not just show us our need for you, but would, would you show us that we have you? <laughs> that we're, we're so often like the older brother who doesn't realize we've had the party for years and years and years. And would you remind us again today that we're yours, you enjoy us, you love us, you like us. Um, and which, could we rejoice in that even as you rejoice over us today? We pray these things for Christ in your name. Amen.